You remember this show that was on uh, years back called Dirty Jobs, uh, where this guy tried out all the like nastiest, most stomach-turning vocations out there? If there were a Dirty Jobs of the ancient world, creators of purple dye would actually be the near the top of this list. Um, you all probably know uh, that purple was the color of royalty, right? Only king and kings and queens wore purple. But I just learned that it wasn't because it wasn't allowed to others, but because no one but royalty could afford the color purple. Until the 1850s, the sole source of purple dye was a sort of snail called a murex snail. And ancient civilizations figured out that this snail secretes a purple mucus from its glands, right? So, if you... I'm sorry, I know that's a word you shouldn't say from the pulpit, but we, I don't know any other way to describe it. So, if you take this snail and you hit one with a hammer, not too hard, but you just lightly squish the snail, don't want to desiccate the thing, uh, it out comes a bit of dark goo. And if you collected tens of thousands of these snails and hit every one of them just so with a hammer and you gathered all of that horrible smelly snail goo into a cauldron and you let it simmer and putrefy over a fire for 10 days, then you distilled one gram of purple dye. So, it turns out there is a show that depicts the dirty jobs of the medieval world and, because you never can tell where the sermon writing process will lead, I watched a lovely British man sort of wretch his way through the whole revolting process. I don't know if you can imagine what a cauldron of 10-day smelling, simmering snails is like. Uh, it's not good, uh, from what I could tell. One of the ways you can tell if the fermenting concoction of snail parts is ready after the 10-day process is by taste. Um, <laughs> so he did it, this poor man, and it was indeed ready. So they lowered a bit of wool into the pot, let it sit for a moment, and then pulled it out. And when they do, the oxidation that happens leads to this chemical reaction where this gray, sodden lump of wool turns into the most brilliant, lurid purple you have ever seen. It's this miracle. And this was the way that the color purple was procured until it was synthesized in a lab in the 1850s. Okay? Right. Fantastically expensive stuff that even royalty couldn't afford the color purple. The emperor Aurelian wouldn't let his wife buy a purple shawl because it was literally worth its weight in gold. Okay? Now... The clever of you out there will realize that this diversion into the color purple was brought to you by a character from our first reading today. Lydia was her name. Luke tells us almost nothing about her, but someone like Lydia is just begging to be the work of historical fiction. A couple of details that we get about her are incredibly rich. When we know that about her is that she is a dealer in purple cloth, that she's a very rich and powerful woman uh, who is the face of this kind of horrible industry of making purple, and 
The smell of her success is 10,000 simmering snails in a pot, okay? Not only that, she's the head of her household, the Bible tells us, and leads them in worship. When she converts, everyone in the house does. She's a foreigner as well of Thyatira, it said. She speaks the language, but with a noticeable accent. She is in Rome with none of the privileges of a Roman citizen. See, the thing about the New Testament you may have noticed, we get lots of characters crossing the screen, but very little information about who they were or the lives that they lived. We don't know all of this about the color purple until we dig in. We hear plenty about folks' encounters with Jesus, which, don't get me wrong, is absolutely the point here, but we don't get much of who these people were. And I don't mean this just about bit characters like Lydia out there. Take, for instance, the 12 disciples, the most important witnesses to the life of Christ, and we have insight into, I don't know, five of them, yeah? How many disciples can you even name? What was Bartholomew doing the whole time? I guess I just wish that some of these people had been a little more fleshed out as characters, particularly when I start running into the names of women in our stories. Another place in the Bible, there's just a brief mention of a woman named Tabitha, and they call her a disciple, offhandedly. Um, Important, (laughs) and that's all we've got. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says, please, you know, greet Junia, she's an apostle, a female apostle, and she's just like listed, like the most ordinary greeting in the world, while the church will then spend the better part of 2,000 years covering up the fact that she even existed. Maybe the authors of the Bible didn't bother elaborating on these figures because they didn't imagine that the gospel would be so successfully turned into yet another tool of institutional and patriarchal control. Maybe they just couldn't fathom new generations of Christians resisting what was so clear to them that, as Paul wrote, In Christ Jesus, there was no more Jew or Greek. There was no more slave or free. There was no more male or female. No more distinctions in Christ Jesus. Distinctions done. And on the other hand, I think readers of the Bible are given a sort of gift here with these characters. We are asked to give some effort in the reading, of imagination, just by reading this book. You know, I like that about the Bible. We're given the dignity of choice in the text, which sounds a whole lot like a relationship of love. No strong-arming, no airtight arguments, just some stories that you get to flesh out. You get to choose the voice you want to amplify. 
Will you listen to a line from the letter that commands that wives be subjects of their husbands? Or will you listen to Lydia? It's up to you. One last thought on Lydia. In our Bible study here a few weeks back, a really interesting question came up about the sort of jobs it was right for a Christian to have. You know, we tell the stories of the disciples leaving their nets behind, forsaking everything, and maybe that catches someone with, like me with a particular force. But these one-line characters, they keep their jobs. Soldiers remain soldiers. The cloth dealer keeps selling her wares to royalty. God opens Lydia's heart, the text says. And again, the author will not elaborate for us on what that looks like, as though these moments are too holy and private to pry into them. We know Lydia doesn't drop the snails. She keeps her job. She runs her household. But now she goes to it with something changed. The first thing she feels called to do is to open up and give of the wealth she has. She provides hospitality. It's an interesting piece of this story to consider. You and I are here in this room today because God has been at work in our hearts. When that happened, how did you begin to make space for others? How did you care for them? Like the characters in the Bible, you can say one thing is true. God is opening our hearts, however that looks. What will grace look like to others who read these few lines of our lives? What will this look like when you fill out the rest of the story?